0: Jim owns and manages Clarefield, a 1,000-hectare property east of Binaway, where he runs a self-replacing Angus herd and produces grain and fodder hay. In this episode, Jim explains how his mentor, John Atkins, shaped the way he farms today. John, who was the previous owner, was passionate about developing Clarefield with the use of lime, fertiliser and tropical grasses. And now Jim shares John's passion – and has continued to improve the land he manages by building soil health and carefully managing his pastures. You'll also hear about Jim's approach to tackling the big challenge of controlling blue heliotrope across his farm. This competitive weed is becoming an increasing problem to manage, and Jim shares some of his best methods for control. Jim sat down for this yarn with Local Land Services Mixed Farming Officer, Callan Thompson, over a cup of tea, one quiet afternoon on the farm.
1: So, today I'm with Jim Larkin on his property at Yulebar, which is uh, just on the outskirts of Binaway. And Jim also manages Clearfield, which is on the other side of Binaway. It's
2: seven Ks out, yeah. Yep. yep.
1: Jim, do you reckon you could tell me about the operation at Clearfield?
2: Yeah, we run self replacing Angus cow herd there with a bit of cropping and hay production, real mixed soil types. So we run from deep sand to lime type soils, a bit of red soil and a bit of black soil. And then there's another block a bit further up the road that we lease that's yeah, probably more predominantly the heavier soils, the black and red soils. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Tropical grasses and loosen are a big part of your, your enterprise?
2: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, we probably... Oh, yeah, obviously, we're nowhere near stocked at the moment coming out of the drought. But mm. we in the past, we've grown tremendous amounts of lucin. But probably with the drought, we're probably just rethinking that a little bit. And yep. as we discussed earlier, we'll still have lucin to serve a purpose and improve soil and ocean for grazing crops, etc. Yep. But we just won't have such big acreages. And, and we, yeah, make a lot of hay. So the lucerne will fit in there in, in the right seasons. So, yeah.
1: So, Jim. I reckon the first time I was on Clarefield was with Tony Stewart when I was a trainee agronomist, and I remember sitting down having a fairly long discussion over a cup of tea with with John. Can you go through how John's a big part of
2: Clarefield? Oh, absolutely. Can so you explain his his role. So it's been in the Atkin family since 1929. Like he lived there his whole life. So he, I mean, he travelled overseas for a little bit and did those sort of things, but basically. Clearfield was his passion, so that you know that's what he was very driven to see it improve and and to see pretty light soil block that a lot of people would ride off become quite productive. Yeah, his mother and father moved there in 1929, I'm pretty sure, and there was very little country cleared on that when they got there. And obviously, you could imagine the amount of work that they've done to get it to where it is, you know, today. And talking to John. Over the many years, like the big first pasture improvement for them was subcover, like that was where they was things started to really improve, and then like single super fertilizer programs helped get things going in the right direction for them. He would have been early on, you know, in spreading lime and trying to remedy the soil pH a little bit, so that you could, you know, further that production and grow, you know, better species. So and and so getting back to the loose and like. Yeah, he loved nothing more than seeing loose and grind on sandy country, and that's probably why we grew so much of it because he could see where it had come from and just couldn't believe that he could actually do that. So, and that's you know we're probably changing that a little bit now, but it it was really you know pretty special to see loose and grind on some very deep sand. Yeah, Clearfield was his his life's work. Yeah, yeah. So, and I mean, you would have seen that in your early days, just how passionate he was about it, pretty strong-willed on getting it to where he wanted it to be. So Yeah.
1: And so John worked pretty closely with Bob Freeburn in the early days of yeah. tropicals. I think John and my grandfather, Mark Beresford, were pretty good mates and often known to go to field days and stuff, looking at tropical grasses and some of that soil nutrition in terms of single super and, and lime. How do tropicals fit into your current production system?
2: Uh, yeah, I think for us, like, uh, obviously at the moment our cow numbers are at 50% of where they'd normally be and as we saw today, like, plenty of feed and whatever. But, yeah, I think moving forward, I think they're they're very important to what we are trying to do. Like, we're doing a bit more cropping at the moment to just make the system work as a whole and in doing that also it'll allow us to get some more country going with tropical grasses. But I think from a, a grazing Enterprise point of view on that sort of country, I think they're very, very hard to beat. And as you've seen, you know we've got Consul Lovegrass, some Bambatsi, some Digit. Yeah, they all have a place in that that system. You get a half decent summer and just the amount of production that you can get off it is phenomenal. Which and it fits in with a self-replacing sort of herd. Like you've got good production, it's safe feed. Like if you've got a lot of loose and you've got to think about when you when you're stocking it, etc. And, you know, we split paddocks up with hot wires and all that sort of thing so that we can manage our grazing and try and get it in a bit of a rotation so that we're getting decent recovery and, and all those and letting, you know, paddocks seed up that we want to thicken up or improve a little bit. So, yeah, with the weather the way it's been, I think it's, it's a better fit on that lighter country for trying to manage, you know, longer-term ground cover in drier times and that sort of thing too, so...
1: Yeah, yeah, and you showed me an example today of a paddock that had really blue heliotrope previously and, and you'd sown some tropical grasses and and we struggled to find a blue heliotrope in where the grass was thick. We could only really see it around rock heaps and and those sort of areas.
2: Yeah, and, and for Clarefield in the time I've been there, so I started there full-time in uh, 1995 and then we had some console lovegrass. We yeah, John hadn't done much with Digit at that point, and we started doing something with Digit soon after that. But we had quite a bit of country then that was just, it was beautiful sub-Cover country in the winter time, but... The heliotrope was just beating it in the summertime. We had a bit of native summer grasses, but the heliotrope was just too good. So those paddocks, we were getting good winter production, but getting very, very little off them in the summertime. And you know, you could put stock in there for a week or two weeks or whatever, but they weren't going to be there long before you were moving them on because there was not much else other than heliotrope. So then we started farming those paddocks in a you know minimum tillage sort of system where we were using Roundup to control the heliotrope. And we would do that for, you know, depending on the paddock, it might be three, four, five years, and then obviously try to sow a, a subtropical pasture in them after that. You know, we had our successes, we had our failures, but basically a lot of that country is, you know, miles more productive because of it. Yeah, and the, and the heliotrack will always be there on Clarefield, Like, as we said earlier, it's been there since the 1930s, so it's, you know, got a 90-year history there. So the amount of seed that's on that country is phenomenal. And what really showed that was we spoke about a console lovegrass paddock earlier it had been a console paddock for probably 20 years we'd really struggled to keep the legume content in it and we I think while you're an agronomist for us Colin we'd actually drilled some loosen into it in one spring didn't get we got it up and going but didn't sort of get the spring to go with us. and the console was too competitive for it so then we decided that we would pull it out and have another go and that paddock was very similar to the one we looked at today where we had a good thick standard console, the paddock we looked at today was digit, but the same system you would only find the odd heliotrope plant, so then we we sprayed it out, worked at yeah zero till sowed oats in it the following year, like just had heliotrope coming up like we'd never never seen before, yeah. so we'd taken the competition of the console off it, yeah. given it a you know summer fallow and just and it's gone happy days, yeah. so yeah,
1: in the early days as you're moving into zero till when you're still ploughing, it really just spread it through the paddocks.
2: Yeah, yeah, we were we were probably like a lot of people at that time. So that was, well, a lot of people in this area, I'm not sure about elsewhere, but in uh, that was mid, that was probably sort of that 95 to 98, 1998 period. Yeah, and so we were on a, you know, plough, scarify type system. And then I don't know what the change was, but we realised that we could get a result with heliotrope and roundup that's when we changed the system like the heavier country that we'd looked at at that time we didn't have heliotrope there so it was on a minimum till system we would spray it out over the summer if we had a lot of stubble on it at the time we would have to burn it to get through it and we just had a pretty conventional combine so we'd burn it at the end of april early may scarify it once and then sow it whereas now we don't burn any stubble we retain it wherever we can and But on the lighter country where the heliotrope was, ploughing and scarifying, like, yeah, we were just making the problem worse. Usually
1: we're using sort of two litres of Roundup at at least to control blue heliotrope. Back in the late 90s, early 2000s, that would have been a pretty solid rate of Roundup. Now it's not unusual to
2: use those. No, that's right. And I think I could be wrong, but I reckon we wouldn't have, at that time we probably used a litre and a half of 450, whereas now... If you were bringing in a paddock that had really old established plants, we might go at two and a half liters for that first spray. Yeah. Then you sort of, generally, would be around that two liters after that. In the second year, you know, and you've just got a lot of little seedlings coming up. You, you know, you might be back to one point five, one point eight, depending on what you, what you thought the yeah. problem was. But any of those old established plants, you'd definitely go. Nice and heavy early on. Yeah. yeah,
1: I think one of the main things I like to talk to people about when they are trying to control heliotropin fallows is try not to use any sort of two, four D in with it because it does just burn the tops off and yep. it stops that roundup translocating down. And
2: yeah, and yeah. I, do, I don't, you can't um, emphasise the value enough of of spraying it on time. It's one thing you can't go, oh well. We'll go and do something else for a week and we'll come back to it like when you've had the rain it's fully flowering and everything's right like you need to be there because if you and we've done it ourselves like with graze on on pasture country just trying to thin it out a bit and i remember i did two paddocks a day apart but at either ends of the farm and i went before i did the spray and i only went and looked at one which was obviously where the best of the rain had been prior got a beautiful result there the other paddock didn't realize till I got there and had the tank mixed up because I just assumed we'd had the same amount of rain, hadn't had as much rain there and got half the result. So, like anything to do with heliotrope, your timing is just crucial and critical to getting a result because a lot of people still believe you cannot kill it with yeah. Roundup and, and you won't if you haven't got your timing right. So, yeah. yeah.
1: So, in your tropical grasses, Jim, how are you managing your uh, fertilizer nutrition, your, your soil nutrition?
2: It's still something that we probably still haven't got quite right. Like in the past, we basically did you know half the place with single super one year and the other half the next year. But yeah, as we'd sort of discussed earlier, given the amount of growth that we've got going on with some of those paddocks, I don't think in some cases that's enough. We're obviously trying to really get our legume content right in there to produce some end, like to feed those grasses. I think it's very... You know, I mean, you can throw urea and sulfate of ammonia at them and all that sort of thing, definitely, but um, that's going to lift production and it's going to lift the nutrition of that grass for sure. But in the right season, you probably can't get enough of it on there. And, yeah. and, and also with your legumes too, they're, they're really going to help you, but they probably in the ideal, like we haven't top dressed any country this year because we're understocked, et cetera. But if you had your stocking rate right up there and even with good legumes, I think you're still going to need to top it up a bit more if you're really chasing ultimate production from that system. Yeah. Yeah. I
1: think you need to have your stocking rates right too to have that because as soon as you start putting nitrogen on it, you're getting so much more growth and and you really, I guess we sort of suggest do that in targeted paddocks where you know you're going to try and have a class of stock that is going to be able to to utilise it and also can benefit from that increased protein in the, the leaf and, and potentially better metabolizable energy.
2: That's right and, and that's the thing. In the past when we were stocked up fairly well, we would just target a paddock that we would top dress a bit of extra ammonium sulphate or a bit of urea on because, yeah, if you do the whole lot at once, like you're going to have phenomenal growth but you physically can't use it in that time frame In a good season and if you've top dressed it, like the digital go from, say, 100. 50 mil high to you know 450 mil high in two or three weeks and i mean that's that's where the best of that feed like where you're probably getting the best feed value out of and then before you know it it's throwing a seed head up and that feed value is probably declining more than still more than good enough for cow and calf units yeah but if you're really chasing and, and steers and that'll do well on it too but if you're really chasing super growth with your weaner cattle then you know you probably need to have it in the right vegetative phase, vegetative to stage, yeah. yeah, get maximum production, yeah, and that's you know that's why we'll hotwire fence paddocks in half and that sort of thing, just so that we can try and yeah, when you've got your full stocking rate, you can try and hit a paddock with a large number of stock and then move them on reasonably quickly. We're not like we're not in a cell grazing system as such. It's just just trying to manage, trying to get maximum, you know, not flog the country too much and but still trying to, to get good production levels out of it
1: yeah, yeah yeah and in the past you've used quite a bit of loosened mixed with tropicals
2: yeah yeah
1: how do you think that's working
2: we were quite happy with it with the recent dry years that we've had I I am questioning it a little bit like and not the I still think the loosen in there is a great thing but I just it might be the amount of loosen that we have in there. Maybe we've got to put a little bit less in there. What we found, particularly on some heavy country, was that the loosen was just drying it out too too deep. And so then your black soils would be cracking right open and you start to lose some of your tropical pasture out of that system because it's I think it just dries the country out too much. But yeah, when the seasons are running with you, it's it's brilliant. Yeah. Something to remember too is a loosen, even in you know, a well-managed paddocks not going to be you know if you get eight or nine years out of it in a in a tropical grass pasture like i think you've done pretty well like yeah. we'll we've got you know 10 or 12 year old paddocks where there's still a bit of loosening them but there's very little like it's compared to what was there so i think it'll help in the early days but i think longer term you probably you probably need to look depending on your soil type you know look at the other species like on those lighter soils like your Bicerella and your arrowleaf and your subclover, they all do really well and particularly look, the arrowleaf stock aren't super keen on it but, gee, it'll grow a phenomenal amount of material. Yeah. And, and, and That I dry would matter th-
1: means nitrogen, doesn't it?
2: Well, that's what I think, yeah. I think it's can be a bit hit and miss. It is super tough in a dry time, the arrowleaf, when you get everything to align for you, the amount of biomass that you're you're growing there with that is just phenomenal. And if you can eat a bit, trample a bit, break a bit down on the soil surface, it's got to be you know, a good thing for those yeah, for tropicals sure. longer term.
0: This episode was produced as part of Central West Local Land Services' ADAPT project through funding from the Australian Government's National Land Care Program. Thanks for listening. This podcast was brought to you by Central West Local Land Services. Local Land Services delivers advice and support to farmers, landholders and the community across New South Wales. To learn more, you can find us online by searching for Central West Local Land Services. If you'd like more information about the topics we discussed today, as well as links to relevant articles, fact sheets, events and other helpful resources, we've added those into the show notes for this episode. You can find them by tapping or swiping over the cover art in your podcast player now. Hey, and while you're there, please leave us a five-star review. It really helps other farmers find the show. I'm your host, Narily Brennan, and I'll chat to you next time.